Filmed in 1936 Berlin during the Olympic Games, Leni Riefenstahl's Olympia showcased the German celebration of international competition and virtues of athletic performance, sportsmanship, and, despite what critics may claim, goodwill amongst nations and peoples. Controversy, however, was inevitable as the Second World War was just around the corner, and tensions between the great powers were already rising. Regardless of one's politics, and even to some of interwar Germany's harshest critics, Olympia is heralded by audience members and filmmakers alike as a masterpiece of its craft, showcasing innovative cinematography and highlighting some of the beauty inherent in the human spirit. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hockey. It's been time together. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I'm Nick and uh, I'm joined with Adam. Tonight, Adam and I are going to have a conversation about the Olympics. That's the plan. So, uh, I hope my audio is okay. Uh, Wait, no, there's a train coming. I'm going to restart this. (laughs) Leave it in. (laughs) Uh, Okay, I can leave it in. Yeah, I guess that is kind of funny. Anyways. Are you actually under the tracks this time, or uh, have you avoided that in your life so far? No, no. Uh, yeah, it's hasn't happened yet. I, um, I thought we could talk about the Olympics because, well, that's what's going on right now. And I can think of no better time to talk about what was the greatest and should have been the last Olympics. And that was the 1936 Summer Olympic Games in Berlin, baby. Now, I recommend everyone watch Lainey Riefenstahl's masterpiece, Olympia, which you find in two parts. The first, uh, I believe, is called Festival of Light, and the second is Festival of Beauty. Uh, could have, oh, no, I believe the first would be probably Festival of Youth, is what I would guess. I can't remember exactly. Probably Festival of Youth, because... Uh, Triumph of the Will is probably a better one for Festival of Light, but I um, I have some opinions about the Olympics, and I'm sure you do too, Adam. Uh, they've become a, really a tragic spectacle of all kinds of you know hideous struggles between a bunch of decrepit empires. I mean, it's really something that, like, this world, it shouldn't and can't really be done in the world that we live in, so they should stop trying. But the last good faith effort at reviving the tradition of the Olympiad really was the 1936 Berlin Olympics. I mean, you have to keep in mind that uh, I think it was the 12th 
10th or the 12th, um, since the Olympic movement revived the concept, which was in 1892. It might have been the 11th. It might have been the 11th. Um, back then, it was also the last in which the winter and the summer games were held in the same year at the same location. Uh, and also worth noting is that the Winter Olympics held in Germany, I believe in v Bavaria, uh, was the first to feature downhill alpine skiing, just a, as a point of fact. Now, the Olympic movement was, that's a, it's a really complicated subject because you're dealing with these would-be international body existing through some really turbulent times in European history. I won't pretend to understand all the intricacies of what's known as the IOC or the International Olympic Committee. It's sort of like a, it's, it's a very Byzantine structure and it's in a certain sense a, a nascent globalist structure. But I think it's safe to say that in its beginnings it had very good intentions. Now, I don't know where you'd like to start uh, when it comes to the 36 Olympic Games. Uh, we could start by talking about the film that Lenny Riefenstahl made. Or we could start with some of the political controversies. I think one place that's actually good to start is let's start from the American perspective, um, which is always the worst perspective. So let's just get that out of the way first, because I think uh, the majority of our listeners are uh, unfortunately finding themselves in the situation where they're considered to be Americans. And they probably, what they probably know of it, unless they've gone out of their way to look further. I mean, I had trouble myself. I mean, I, I was familiar, of course, with the film. I've seen it many times over the years, but and it is a beautiful film. Absolutely fantastic film. I wish I could find it on Blu-ray. Um, I don't know if anyone knows if it's possible to do so. Obviously, it falls into that category of masterpieces of film that uh, are not allowed to be given a proper restoration i know that criterion collection put out a hundred year like centennial kind of olympic films collection and they did include uh, olympia in it uh, much to the whining and bitching of some people who i saw leaving reviews about it i'm not sure if i'm prepared to buy however many films that is that i don't want anything to do with i just want that one film and i'm not sure if it's on blu-ray either I don't know, if anyone knows, I'd be interested. Because that's a film that really deserves proper restoration. As Same with Tri Triumph of the Will, of course. But The American perspective... I mean, okay, let's do it this way. Adam, what did you... What was your context for the 1936 Olympic Games? Well, um, I mean, I guess growing up, we were always taught uh, it revolved around Jesse Owens and Hitler. Oh, yeah, that's the right answer. Yes. That, that, that's what my teachers told me, yes. Yes, that's the correct answer. I mean, that's that's really all there is to it. It's about uh, America owning National Socialist Germany by bringing one of their pet Negroes uh, to Europe to win four gold medals, I believe it was. And the thing about that, well, there's a couple things about that. Uh, but I think the first thing it's important as all American school children are taught, it's important to remember that national socialist Germany was a state that was built on the hatred of the American Negro. Uh, that was one of the, the core tenets of national socialism in Germany was it was, it was an anti-black movement at its core, 
which is why, you know, when the contemporary American Negro sees the ancient symbol of the swastika, he recoils in horror at the atrocities that were committed by National Socialist Germany against the American Negro. Do I have that right, Adam? According to uh, television, you have that right. Okay. I was just checking because I thought it was the American government that sent its, by compulsion, they sent its Negroes over, the few that they did send over. There weren't that many to be killed in Europe. Uh, And again, there weren't that many. Right. I think most of them were sent to Italy, actually. Yeah, I actually don't know. But uh, no, they certainly certainly had it out for the blacks in Germany, given that they represented uh, less than 1% of the population. I'm gonna I'm gonna dig a little ways into this uh, the Jesse Owens story. I, ha- I have some notes on it. Uh, I don't want to just open with that because that's that'd be a little bit too American. Uh, I just wanted to touch base with what your context for it was, and you gave the right answer, Adam. It, it, we're supposed to be talking about Jesse Owens. <laughs> I mean, you know, first of all, like, okay, like just breaking the skit here for a second i mean there were a lot of other events like and the fact that it it just numerically mathematically it's sort of weird that we're always talking about this runner i mean there's also shot put javelin high jump uh the decathlon the marathon um he was a sprinter uh he was i think a long jumper um it's probably a couple other things but you know He's a good athlete, but there were a lot of good. He athletes was one there. fast nigga. Sure. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, for example, even Lainey Riefenstahl in her film, like there was some controversy actually as to because it, it is unfortunate that such a beautiful Aryan spectacle had to have a, a colored gentleman in it, at least in the perspective of the film, and there was some controversy over that and. Lady Riefenstahl thought it was important that uh, sprinklers are now going off at this elementary school I'm parked in, and uh, my windows are open. So, let me, uh, you better move them. your panel, Dan. Oh, uh, one second. Uh. Oh, fuck my notes. Fuck, fuck, fuck. Are your notes getting sprinkled? <laughs> yes, they got soaked. Oh, my God. Fuck. Well, take a picture. We'll put it. We'll put it on the uh, the slideshow, just so people believe us. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, Lady Riefenstahl wanted a, a faithful documentation of it, and I mean, uh, the colored gentleman did in fact win four gold medals, so it, it's only right that he be included in the film. Now, one thing that I will say, speaking on the race subject i haven't been able to find any definitive proof of this but from looking through the countries uh who attended i'm going to say that uh it was the american team that had the only africans there were 49 countries that attended the 1936 olympics even bermuda and you, you, you know, you look at the list of people from Bermuda, it's like, hmm, I wonder. But then you think about it, what event did they enter? Well, they event- entered the swimming. So that, that's a, right. I mean, there, there requires no thought there. Um, 
And if you watch Olympia, the only Negroes present are on the American team. I mean, there are other colored people, uh, that is the Egyptians and the Indians, but no Negroes. Because at this time, you have to remember in history of the 20th century, uh, there were no like Negro states. That wasn't a thing. I mean, yeah, you there had, were colonies. Yeah, that wasn't a the, the the fake countries that they drew up in the post-colonial era had not yet come to exist. So you had. I mean, the one meme country that existed was, uh, I guess it was Abyssinia, right? Hmm. That was defeated by the Italians. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then it became Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. Um, I know there's a lot of, like, memes around that amongst the, uh, sort of the real woke, real woke niggas uh, regarding, like, the the Rastafars and stuff, Mm -hmm. because of the deposed king, uh, uh, Hulia or I don't know how you say that. I'm not going to pretend I know how you say that. But the point is, uh, the Dark Continent did not send anyone. Uh, North Africa did. Uh, there are some other obvious absences. of You did not have the uh, Bolshevik Empire was not present. Uh, they uh, There's a number of reasons for that. I mean, not the least of which is that they did... De- I believe in the twenties declared their opposition to it. Anyways, we were talking about, Oh yeah. I think it's really funny that Americans were probably the only ones who brought the Negroes. <laughs> yeah. As far as I can remember I mean, from the film, that seems it, right. Uh, I actually didn't even notice it, on pick up on that, but yeah, it's well, a good look at the list of countries and tell me which one would possibly have done the same. Um, 49, 49 countries. Yeah. Britain. Bermuda I mean, was a possibility, but yeah, then when you which look at who British. Bermuda sent, you find out that they yeah. sent a, a swim team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, France or somebody like that might might do that too. I don't know when the the Muslim coloni- colonization of Paris happened, but there were definitely uh, French North African colonies at the time. Dude, France in the 1930s was not going to send Negroes to represent Well, you know what was weird was they did the Roman salute at the opening uh, ceremony. Yes, they did. They absolutely did. That's just surreal, like, like knowing what happened to them three years later. What happened to them? You mean what they brought on themselves? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, they declared war, that's true, but, yeah. Okay, now, to put this back into context, I asked Adam when we started what he remembered from... His uh, his days of zog school as a as a youth, and the thing that Americans aren't going to know is the actual context to this because it's 1936 was a very significant year. I mean, you have to consider. In you had the I mean the German Revolution took place in 1933, and only two years after this you had Anschluss, the Treaty of Munich, both in 1938, uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop was uh, 1939, and then the dual invasion of Poland by both the Third Reich and the USSR was in 1939. So this is, in a certain sense, the height of, of the peace. And it's the real context for this is the great tragedy of what that means. I mean, there was a, a this was also itself following the great european holocaust of the first war so you had a moment of potentially this olympic movement that got its genesis in the at the turn of the century was about to pay off in a major way 
and bring together a, a true European peace. It's very possible. I mean, those, there was a lot of optimism at the time. And there was a lot of good feeling with the exception of the uh, perpetual sourpuss Jew lovers, the American and British attendees, who, of course, received the most lukewarm reception with the Americans walking in pathetically with their like dumb straw hats over their hearts and the British just being you know, mopey to no great fanfare. I mean, you had the Bulgarians goose-stepping, even the French were throwing up Romans, the Italians, of course. I mean, it was all a good time. I mean, the reality, and there was a lot of controversy that preceded this regarding talk of a boycott, but I think it probably would have been for the best that the Americans not be allowed to attend. Um, that would have probably, and the British as well. I mean, in the later Olympic politics, it, you had a lot of talk that, you know, so-and-so shouldn't, shouldn't be present. I mean, the Spanish were not there, and the Spanish were not there because they were too busy uh, being owned by uh, Franco. They would have boycotted it anyways, but um, they were also doing a, the Republicans were doing a massive self-own there. So it was an interesting time in the inner, it was the height of the interwar period. You know what I'm saying? Like right in the middle. And there was a possibility of peace. There was still, you know, some stuff going on, no doubt. But I think that we get a glimpse when we look at, especially when we look at the film, Olympia, we get a glimpse into another possible future that was denied to Europe. One of peace, which is what the spirit of the Olympics should be. I mean, shit, even under the old Olympics, like he had a, what they call the Olympian truce. And there were like certain rules about this, but if you were like in the middle of fighting a war, you know, one city state between another, you weren't expected to just stop fighting the war, but everything surrounding the actual event, there was supposed to be a truce. Again, more digressions, but is there anything you'd like to add, Adam, before um, before I go into a little bit of the specifics? Well, I, I was trying to contextualize my thought with uh, a few facts, which I have not uh, been able to gather in the time at which my initial thought came to mind. But what I was getting at was the uh, the film obviously portrays um, sort of pre-World War II Germany uh, in... A positive light i mean it's it's a functioning happy crowd of people that are in a very well uh, built and designed uh, architectural wonder uh, in berlin I, I assume this thing was destroyed during the war but uh, i mean i've been to berlin i don't remember anything like this um it actually was not did they demolish it later or is it still there well someone shot an anti-tank gun uh, at the bell uh, and there was bombs that hit near the tower that housed the bell which itself was a very epic tower and so I think in like 47 uh, the British demolished the tower mm-hmm. as opposed to you know make any effort to restore it yeah. of course <laughs> yeah, you can't have anything good <laughs> Yeah, no, it still exists this day. I mean, like, it would be pretty hard to destroy it. It was not like you could, yeah, you know, mess up parts of it. Well, the it um, massive the the Zeppelin plots in um, 
Nuremberg where they had the rallies. That's still there. But what the Americans did was they blew up the eagle on top of the uh, sort of back back of the dais, whatever that's called, the stage. <laughs> so yeah, they didn't they didn't destroy that either, I guess. Uh, but anyway, my point was. Um, Obviously, Hitler was big into architecture. He had uh, Albert Speer as his, as his right-hand man doing all this stuff. And, and so this was a big spectacle. I mean, it was a big display. I don't remember when the, um, the World Fair was held, but that was also an interesting one because there's, uh, there's sort of like iconic picture of the German and uh, Soviet pavilions. And this is one of uh, Speer's, uh, hand, you know, some of his handiwork again that they they were doing this like counter intel against each other trying to like fool the other side into thinking what the final height of their statue was going to be uh and i can't remember at this point which was higher but i th- i think the germans might have actually been able to pull it off but there was like soviet man you know all muscled out uh i think on top of uh the big platform across like a road and then on the other side um just facing it was the german eagle and i think they were able to get that to like <laughs> two meters taller or something it was just it was just a big flex on on both sides and then notably in the olympics the uh, soviets weren't even there and um i mean truly like the the rival i guess with uh with germany was was great britain i mean that they, they were the mortal enemies at the time uh and and they got wrecked <laughs> yeah, they didn't do too well. Yeah, uh, I should add though. Uh, I'm, I'm just talking about Albert Speer. Uh, Albert Speer did not design the Olympic Stadium, though. It was instead designed by a man named uh, Werner Mark. Or Mark. Um, so I think uh, Speer did have some input, and there's some kind of controversy over. I mean, it was done in a similar. Yeah. I mean, what perfect opportunity for the, like the neoclassical style of Speer and the Third Reich. I mean, that this is the whole concept of it, given its absolute expression in the sense that you're reviving the classical wor- a tradition from the ancient world into the modern. I mean, it's it's just it's perfect, perfect in every way. I mean, and the 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 undertaking was huge. I mean, it took. Uh, I have some, so I will be reading throughout this some quotations and my main source is a book that is not very good it's actually very bad it's called hitler's olympics however there's useful information in it i mean it's exactly what you'd expect i mean people you know can't take the circumcised cock out of their mouth for two seconds to write a fucking book anymore so it's you know you get what you get but uh the there's a lot of really good pictures i gave adam a uh, Adam may be including some of those in the slideshow if you're watching the slideshow. But uh, regardless, this is some descriptions of it, of uh, the project and what was done. So, inside two years, the Olympic complex in <coughs> pardon me, in the Grunwald swallowed up 42 million Reichmarks. Some 2,600 workers from 500 separate companies worked long shifts. Over 21 million cubic feet of earth were excavated. Over 1 million cubic feet of limestone, granite, basalt, marble, and dolomite were brought from all over Germany, and thousands of mature trees were transplanted from other areas of the Grunwald. More than 17,000 tons of cement were poured into the site, which used over 7,000 tons of iron. 
to increase the stadium seating capacity, the arena floor was lowered 40 feet. Beneath the stands lay more than 50 dressing rooms, as well as administrative offices and first aid stations. In the passageways, there were the restaurants and shops, which would sell Olympic merchandise, such as the postcards and badges, as well as flowers and protection against both rain and sun. Um, It goes on to describe more of the technical details of its construction, but I'd like to talk more about the uh, symbolic aspects. So the tower itself, uh, here we have, there was an opening terrace on three sides rising up to a height of 62 feet. And on the Mayfield's eastern edge stood four stone pillars named after Germanic tribes, Frisian, Franconian, Saxon, and Schwabian. On its western edge, under a three-story grandstand with uh, Langmark Halle, dedicated to a German youth whose lives had been lost in the First World War, particularly those who had suffered devastating losses at Langmark near uh, Erps in November of 1914. There were 12 pillars in the hall bearing the 76 flags of the regiments that took part in that battle. From the midpoint of the hall, a stone tower rose almost 250 feet into the air with 12 shields bearing the names of the German divisions and their units involved at Longmark. The tower provided observation points for many of the game's administrators and journalists, as well as police, fire, medical services. It would also house the Olympic bell, which would become the symbol of the 1936 games. This is the tower that we were referring to earlier. And the bell, the bell, of course, was was lost. Uh, I don't know if an effort was made to restore it after it was... Somebody shot it, I think deliberately, of course, deliberately. Uh, it was like broken and like buried near the tower. It was kind of sticking out of the earth. Uh, the bell you'll, you'd see is the, uh, it's got the German eagle, the imperial eagle, and it's holding the five rings. Uh, which the five rings, by the way, I'm, I'm, people probably know this, but the five rings represent the uh, five continents. And you say, well, why is there five continents? Well, uh, the Americas are treated as one continent. Interestingly enough, uh, the, in the color scheme, uh, the dark continent is not black, but Europe is actually black. Uh, and then it has, on, on the reverse side, it has the Brandenburg Gate. And there were, like, little miniatures of this salt, as souvenirs. It'd be pretty, pretty fucking cool to be able to get one of those. I'm sure collectors out there have gotten those. That would be a neat one to have. Anyways, that's just a few details on its construction. It was a massive, massive project. Really impressive and definitely the most effort that had been put in yet into the um, any of these Olympic, new modern Olympics, without question. Adam? Well, yeah, Riefenstahl did a good job, too, of uh, also... I don't know how groundbreaking this particular aspect of the uh, film Olympia was, but I thought it was kind of a neat, uh, it actually reminded me of some of the, uh, the Disney films of the era uh, where they had this. Well, first of all, the opening was, I guess, supposed to be ancient Greece where everybody is kind of, uh, you know, underclothed uh, for lack of a better phrase. Uh, and they're, they're performing the sort of rituals of human strength and athleticism and beauty and Aryan strength. Yes. And going through, um, going through the motions and then there's kind of a, 
I don't know, Raiders of a Lost Ark style, like kind of math shift. No, don't say that. that. I knew you'd you'd get upset when I said that, but I can't think of another analogy. Um, More of an isometric. That that hack type director to please, please, please. Anyway, she she predated him regardless, so she she didn't. Yeah, they all stole from her too. Anyway, let me finish my point. So, uh, it's a cool it's a cool effect where they. They start in Greece, and actually, they, she spends a lot of time going through all the different little city states, uh, which some of which I'd never heard of. But uh, they go to like Attica, and then they go to Athens eventually. Uh, and so they're just sort of shifting through uh, space and time, and sort of at a isometric, uh, top down, but not completely. And so you actually see like little cityscapes in black and white. And then you're you're slowly making your way through Europe, and you eventually find your way to. Deutschland, uh, and that's where the opening happens. And I thought that was a pretty neat uh, transition effect. Uh, and then, obviously, they have the carrying of the torch, where there's the running, uh, passing of the baton, and then the guy goes up to—I don't know if that's the tower, but wherever the uh, the flame is held, uh, he goes up and he lights it, and it's well. Uh, the flame, the flame is first taken to the palace, and then from there is the final trip to yes. To the stadium, yeah, from Olympia, from Olympia. I mean, it was a few points to that. Uh, so I, I mean, the opening is, is absolutely fantastic, and it is interesting to think about that. Like in um, America, in Jewish Hollywood, in America, they have to appeal to the American puritanical sensibilities. You wouldn't see. I mean, there's there's titties in that. You know, it's 1938. And there's titties, and it's not like some kind of like pervert stuff it's the beauty of the aryan form that's the whole point of course you know, just just, just tops no bottoms class yeah yeah well yeah and, and the men are wearing uh, they are wearing something exactly uh, which they would not have been doing in the ancient world but that transition is is very beautiful because what it is is it's starting with just these shots of the form and then the fire and the fire grows, and the fire grows, and the fire grows, and it's the Olympic fire. And the whole thing is symbolic of an Aryan revival and a bridge through the fire, through the Promethean fire, to the ancient world, to the Hellenic world. So, yeah, it's very beautiful. Her films, like, I mean, they're very, I mean, obviously people know Triumph of the Will is like a, uh, it's a, basically a Wagnerian motif on Hitler and the party. Uh, that's a subject for another episode, though. I could do a whole thing on Triumph of the Will. Uh, there's something else you said. Oh, I wanted to ask you, who, Adam? Who made the uh, who made the torches? Who made them? I, I, I don't. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, just take a guess. Uh, are you talking about the the batons that the guys were passing? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. The batons. They're stainless steel. Who made them? Well. <laughs> I mean, the Japanese make a lot of titanium, but it's not stainless steel. I don't know. I mean, German. This is Germans. the Berlin Olympics. Krupp made them. Oh, there you go. Well, it was the Germans, yeah. Yeah, and you know the the way it was lit. It was lit with a um, with a with a um, with a conve- know, convex or con- whatever magnifying a glass, a piece of glass mm-hmm. uh, that was made by Zeiss. Nice the optics. If anyone, yeah. if, if anyone knows anything about German optics, yeah, it's made by Zeiss. So you have Zeiss and Krupp. I mean. I thought that was a cool fact. Somebody, somebody out there will appreciate. Well, well the batons um, weren't like uh, empty uh, artillery shells, were they? 
I, no, uh, dude, I they were that, like, but... you, you can pull up a picture. I, I in that book that I'm sending you, uh, there's a picture. No, I, I, I found the book. Yeah, and I, I got it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a picture. It's it's a okay. solid. I mean, you could definitely, you could, I mean, easily bash some Jew heads in with that on on the Eastern Front. So I don't know. Maybe maybe one did find itself a new purpose at some point. But anyways, I digress again. So, do you want to talk about the boycott? Yeah, sure. We could talk about that. That's that's one of the main beats I want to hit on. Um, or we could continue to talk about the opening. I think it would be better to talk about the boycott now, and then um, we can move on to the glorious opening. So, the boycott. Uh, basically, it's really comp. I mentioned, I think, earlier that the International Olympic Committee, it's, uh, it's complicated. It's... Uh, it's an ostensibly an international body. Uh, I believe it was formed in France, and its actual headquarters are naturally in Switzerland, of course, right? And each country that participates in the Olympics has their own basically national body, and so then they send a representative of that national body to the international body to, I guess, democracy out um, who the new enemy of the nascent uh, global empire is i mean olympics are always filled these controversies i i uh, one of the funniest fucking parts about this is like people whining about how you know it's all in retrospect really i mean there wasn't a lot of talk at the time that there was, this was going to go badly i think it was pretty clear that the germans were able to do this pretty well and in retrospect though what's really funny is it wasn't until occupied germany that you had a mass jew killing at the olympics in 1972 in munich (laughs) the irony is pretty rich but um basically the ioc was able to more or less clear up like it wasn't because keep in mind okay so germany was it was decided that Berlin would be the host to the 1936 Olympics in 1931 uh, under the decaying Weimar corpse. And so there are obviously, you can imagine, the few actors in the most obvious places, namely Great Britain and the United States, uh, that seem to think that the German Revolution of 1933 should change this. Right, because you can't have a community of nations if your nation doesn't operate exactly the way that the Americans say you should. Right, that's how it's supposed to work, right, Adam? Yeah, whatever you say. You Sorry, my mic was off. Yeah. Well, anyways, point is, is this was a decision that had been made in 1931 under uh, the Weimar regime, and. Uh, the biggest pushback came, of course, from the Americans because uh, the Jewish-American regime was upset that the 1936 Berlin Olympics would not include chicken swinging as an event. And so there was a lot of... Wait, 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 what? <laughs> chicken swinging, the... The, uh, the, the time-honored the, Olympic the, sport the of sport chicken that, swinging. Yeah, the time-honored Olympic sport of chicken swinging. Mm. Uh, this this shit gets really complicated. I mean, obviously, I'm making a joke. Sure, but sure that wasn't Haiti? This, this shit gets really complicated. Seems like voodoo has something to do with that. 
no, no. They were talking about a different type of voodoo, Adam, the worst type of voodoo. But the main dispute was at first, okay, so at first you had the American National Committee was putting up some fuss. And it actually came down to another organization, which was the Amateur American Sports Club, I believe, the AAC. I could be wrong, but it's really not important what the acronym is. Because this was back when... um, Actually, I guess it does kind of matter because I'm going to be reading from the source material I mentioned. It uh, it's the AAU, the, the American Athletic Association, or union. So, yes, yeah, sorry, union, exactly. So here we go from uh, from uh, Idib. Throughout the summer of 1933, American Jewish and anti-Nazi organizations lobbied for the United States to help Germany's half a million Jews number uh, uh, be leaguered in a population of 67 million. The question of the USA's participation in the Berlin Olympics was never far from the top of their agenda. The Americans traditionally sent the biggest teams to the Olympics and won the most medals. Uh, not in 1936, did they? Uh, their reaction, more than anyone else, was crucial. Nevertheless, no one expected the storm that broke in November when the Amateur Athletic Union held its annual meeting in Pittsburgh. The AAU passed a resolution that it would not authorize any American athlete to compete in Berlin until the German Olympic Committee had changed its position, in quote, in fact as well as theory, so that German athletes of Jewish heritage or faith were encouraged to train, prepare for, and participate in the Olympic Games of 1936. Okay. So I'm going to stop there for a second. There's a lot to be said about that. The German Olympic Committee, as I mentioned before, that's the body represents the German nation to the international committee. So they're making demands of another national committee. They're not making a demand of the IOC. I mean, they're making the demand that the IOC guess do something about this but the the demand is effectively about the germans right now in a very typical american fashion like the hypocrisy is rich so rich i mean these are the jews pushing it but even like these kind of system bullshit writers can't help but acknowledge some of this so the only outright opposition was voiced by uh, Dietrich Wortmann, who had represented the USA as a wrestler at the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis and was now the AAU's first weightlifting chairman. Wortmann, from the German-American Sports Club in New York, pointed out that it was all very well the United States insisting that there be, should be no discrimination against Jewish competitors in Germany. But since the American track and field championships had recently been moved from New Orleans to Lincoln, Nebraska, in order that African Americans could take part, and since the national boxing championships had been switched from Baltimore to Boston, again to ensure the African Americans could participate, the AAU had little right to tell other countries how to behave when there was racial discrimination in American sport, too. Other critics added weight to that argument, pointing out that all black athletes likely to make the U.S. team in 1936 would come from the northern colleges that catered for mostly white students. This showed how poor the facilities at the predominantly black colleges were. Another dissenting voice, but for a different reason, was that of Bill Henry, a uh, L.A. Times journalist and member of the American Olympic Committee. He thought that the IOC was based in Europe, that they should make any decisions concerning the Berlin Games. The country would be a lot better off, he wrote, 
if it left the decision regarding the fitness of Germany to hold the games to the international body. I mean, this is this is where the Jesse Owens stuff starts coming back and then getting getting funnier. But I'll, I'll leave that aside for a second and go on to this is another good one. The New York Times, however, was able to report uh, that Theodore Luald had pointed out to his executive colleagues that of the 412 athletes to have represented Germany in the 1928 and 1932 Olympics, only three had been Jews. There may not be any Jewish athletes good enough to compete in 1936 anyway. Cheryl put across much the same point. In 1932, there had been only five Jews out of 400 American competitors. Lord Aberdare, one of Britain's delegates, warned to the theme, only one Jew out of 74 of his country's team in Los Angeles. It seemed that everyone was trying to persuade everyone else that this question of whether uh, Jews could compete in Berlin was getting out of proportion. Uh, yeah, no shit. So you're going to create an international incident over uh, a handful of Jews? I mean, the world had just gone to war. But this is American priorities. So don't, you know, once you understand what American priorities look like, then it makes a little bit more sense. But even considering that, Germany made no claim that Americans couldn't send. They could send all the Jews they want. I mean, hell, maybe the entire American team should be Jews and Negroes, and it would have been a better representative of what America was about. Well, that's perfectly fair. I mean, they made no demands on any other nation as to whom they could send. They only reserved the right to decide who would represent their nation. And you see, this is much in keeping with what should be the spirit. It actually is an irrelevant time to uh, talk about an interesting figure, because this is where... <laughs> He's a very, he, he really settles this kind of issue in a lot of respects, but his name was Avery Brundage. And uh, he was, I think you would probably best describe as like a true believer in the Olympic idea, in the, in the uh, uh, what you would call the Olympic movement. He was, he was very much an idealist who wanted it pure. And he found himself on, he stuck it out in basically until Munich. And he found himself receiving end of a lot of criticism of uh, Jewish, uh, you know, system, allied, capitalist, whatever media. Uh, this extended all the way to, you know, the uh, Rhodesian and South African issues that came later. And it is all an expression of the fact that America gets to decide uh, who and what a nation is. The, the Jews get to decide who a nation is because the ostensibly the idea is that nobody should be barred. There, there's sort of an Olympic equality standard. And I actually, I have a note about this. Yeah. I, I call this the, uh, the Olympic paradox. You see the, uh, uh, he even said something to the effect of the uh, uh, protocol is uh, no restriction on competition based on class, color, or creed. And now that's participation in an international event. Who's to say what a nation is? I mean, the Olympic Committee apparently is, because they're constantly saying shit like this, like, oh, well, Rhodesia, and so this is an illegitimate nation. South Africa, this is an illegitimate nation. I mean, hell, Taiwan, illegitimate nation. I mean, that's probably true, but regardless, I mean, this is... 
really just not possible in the twenty in, in the post war order. It, it's just a fucking farce to be doing this shit because all the time. I mean, these the whole premise of the Olympics is like that you have, or at least the premise of the overly ambitious modern Olympics. The premise of the Olympics of the ancient world is different, and the possibility of a premise of like a European. European and Friends Olympics is kind of what could have been possible and what we saw in 1936, but with the exception of Americans and British, but you can't have this kind of thing go on without equal standing or at least mutual respect or reciprocity or something to that effect. You can't have these, I mean, what the Olympics became in the post-war order was just a Cold War pissing match. I mean, that's what it was. I mean, there's a lot, all, all the best moments in Olympic history were really that. I mean, one of the best, probably the 1956 uh, water polo match between Hungary and the USSR, which is actually pretty metal. I mean, that was called the blood in the water match. And that was, you know, right on the, concurrent with the 1956 Hungarian revolution. You see a lot of stuff like this. I mean, you see it recently, you saw it in, in uh, Russia with the, it's the homosexuals or whatever. I mean, shit, where's the Palestinian Olympic team? I mean, the irony, it gets rich and rich. When you read, I mean, you read this book, like, uh, they talk about, like, people who fled Germany or whatever, and, you know, when it did the, the settler colonist thing in the Zionist state, and it's like, <laughs> I mean, Munich, there's so many delicious ironies in the post-war Olympics from the uh, 1968 Black Power salute to the, the, the total, uh, total ownage of the Israeli soccer team in 1972. Uh, maybe you should have let the Palestinians, uh, you know, participate. But the hypocrisy is just—it's just endless, and it's really—it's something that obviously shouldn't exist, but it's going to continue to exist because it taps into national chauvinism. And it's sad though because it really is something. At the end of the day, I mean, athletic glories. It—I I forgot actually what it was. Was a on the bell? It says. Um, I believe it's uh, summoning the youth of the world because that's really what it is, right? It's a as athleticism at its core is a celebration of youth, and for that same reason, the glories that will come from an athletic achievement, athletic victories, are they're really very fleeting, and that's for I mean a number of obvious reasons. On the one hand, on the part of the individual, that passes with time. I mean, even Michael Phelps, who was a fantastic swimmer, can't do it like he used to. So he's not going to be competing. He's not going to be winning gold medals anymore. And from the perspective of a nation, I mean, shit, like half the nations that have whatever record they have, first of all, they probably won't exist as nations in the future. And otherwise, people come along and they beat them. It's all very fleeting. I mean, it's a nice celebration, but it's not really what's important in this world i mean it's it's a kind of thing for peacetime really and i think it's funny in the in the cold war we have just everyone on edge waiting for the nukes to drop just absolute total holocaust um, there was a lot more tension to it and now there's you know you still have i guess you could call something resembling a new cold war but it's not the same now it's just kind of the last stages of the glo global homo american imperium so Adam, would you like to jump in here? Yeah, just to riff off the the role of, I guess, the nation in the Olympics. I mean, obviously, the title of the Olympic Committee is the International Olympic Committee, which, I mean, if you read it literally, means uh, between nations. Um, but 
you could see the beginnings of it and you could definitely see it now where the divisions between countries are starting to blur and to the point where it's it's really just kind of one mess now. Um, I don't know if we want to jump ahead to the current Olympics, but I, I used to enjoy watching the Olympics. I, I always found it intriguing. I've always loved um, you know learning about other countries and cultures and and I guess one of the frustrations I've always had with um, kind of the the, gl- the global globalist or Americanist version of globalism is it really just gets rid of that and replaces it with just this monoculture, uh, as uh, Tom Soonish would put it, uh, uh, homo americanus. Uh, and, you know, America wasn't the global force that it is today back then, but I think it was uh, it was moving in that direction for sure. And the Olympic Committee, I don't know too much about who's on it today. I especially don't, don't know much about it back then. But... <clears throat> If you look at the original concept of at least the 1896 Olympics in Athens, when they revived this uh, celebration of, I guess, uh, humanity, it was to display the the differences and allow the differences to compete on a sort of a fair playing field without all the politics and everything like that. And if you get rid of that purity and the the essence of i think what the original idea was it's kind of destroying the whole concept in my opinion um you know if you look at the japanese olympics right now i mean it's just it's held in tokyo it's obviously the international olympics but uh 2021 delayed from 2020 because of covid um the american media obviously will fixate on certain things the woke agenda uh but a lot of these woke athletes are underperforming ironically unlike back uh in the case of jesse owens who was under frankly more pressure to perform uh and arguably he did better because of it uh and now if you sort of compare it to these athletes who haven't really achieved anything other than having some kind of weird uh racial background uh they get upheld even before they're even on the damn uh, playing field and so it's sort of like how obama got the uh, the peace prize for literally doing nothing uh and then the by the way the nobel committee later said that they regretted giving it to him after he actually served his term but he got that stupid prize i think uh when he became president and hadn't done you know policy one um, it's sort of comparable to how they'll uphold uh, Simone Biles, whatever her name is, the black gymnast in America. And she just quit, by the way. So it just goes to show you how much uh, of a competitor she is. And so really, it's sort of an insult to all the peoples, frankly, to just kind of pander to them and give them uh, kind of like a childlike treatment that, oh, look at you, good for you. You're so special because you're not uh, of the... Uh, the racial class that uh, is supposedly suppressing everybody. So we're going to, we're going to give you all the, the plaudits even before you accomplish anything. Then they go out and they, they half compete and they don't accomplish anything. It's, it's an insult to their, to their race, frankly, to even have done that whole thing to them. I think people should be uh, told, look, uh, you're going to be judged in your merits and, and your behavior, not, uh, you know, not your skin color, frankly. And I think in the, the basis of the the Olympics. I think that was the original idea. You know, you come and you compete and if you do well, you know, you get the medal. I think, I think it's just been sort of wrecked uh, little by little ever since I think the original 
concept was was created back in the 19th century it's an interesting prism to look at the 20th century through it's not something that we tend to look at that's why i thought it'd be interesting to talk about this and i think if i could describe what we've arrived at in whatever this current year is uh yes i did forget what year it is uh uh, this one uh tokyo olympics uh it's the americanization of it you know it's basically like you know our mystery meat from our economic zone can beat your mystery meat from your economic zone it's no different than american sports ball you know what do you belong to what what is your whatever state you happen to reside in and you become tribal at it it's like a it's so ephemeral and just weak you know and honestly it was a nice try that they had and I think it was really born out of a kind of a very 19th century thinking. We're doing like nation states. And that would be analogous to when you did have a community, sometimes warring, but a broader racial and cultural community of nation states, or in the case of the ancient world, the city states. Uh, that just doesn't transplant well. And the 20th century has proven that. I mean, we're past that. I, I don't. I think it's that we can, we can't do that anymore. I think that I think that Aryan people need to exist as a single power block on the, the world stage if they're going to exist at all. I, I don't think nations. I, I mean, shit, dude. If the events of the early 20th century improve that, I don't know what does. But some people are still hung up on that for the same reason that they're hung up on, you know, flag waving at the Olympics, even though like their future is getting pissed away wherever they're from. Yeah, everyone's under assault from this. As as Sunak would point out too, as as Adam referenced. Now, I don't want to skip talking about uh, the true idealist of this of this Olympic idea of the modern Olympic idea, because I didn't know about this man, uh, and then doing some reading, I found out about him. I, I think he's a he's a really interesting figure, Avery Brundage, and I gave a sort of preliminary description of my impressions of him. I would say the man was incredibly based. But not in a necessarily ideological sense. He was just a man who was honorably dedicated to his principles. I mean, shit, so much so that when the Cold War did come, and he was pushing for the inclusion of the USSR, and he was called by the same Americans who helped turn over Europe to the USSR, uh, you know, some Soviet stooge. It's like, you know, heated yaki moment, actually. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Uh, you know, same same conflicts came up, but he was always stuck to his principles and his understanding of what the uh, standards by which participation would be. And he wanted to see it happen. He wanted everyone to see, you know, come and do athleticism every four years or whatever. That's that's what he was about. So I have actually a little bit more from that book. Uh, this is about when because he got sent. And he, okay, so he was the main guy for the American Olympic Committee, and he would actually later become, the reason he was such an important figure in the, the later controversies is he'd become the guy at the International Olympic Committee. You know, probably the, the most powerful figure. I think it was an official title if it's president or chairman or, you know, uh, uh, El Duce. But here's from the book. Uh, he met Jewish sports leaders at the Kaiserhof Hotel in Berlin, a venue much favored by the Nazis. 
They may have felt at least a little intimidated by the presence of uh, Deputy uh, Reich sports leader Arno Breitmeier, an avowed anti-Semite who attended the meetings in his SS uniform, complete with cavalry boots. Uh, the Jewish sports representatives may also have felt uncomfortable at the presence of Siegfried Edstrom, the Swedish vice president of the IOC, who had already gone on record as saying that the IOC should support their German colleagues in the face of the international Jews. According to an account by Robert Atzlotz, director of the German Maccabee movement, oh God, uh, Brundage told the meeting that he could only consider discrimination against the Jews in sport. Anything else was irrelevant to him. He had no problem with Jewish sport being separated from everyone else's, so long as Jews would be considered for the German Olympic team. In America, he said that there was the concept of separate but equal. Even his own club in Chicago did not permit Jews to enroll as members. Again, more American hypocrisy. But they had equal rights when it came to representing America in the Olympics. And that was what mattered. Atzlatz, who four years later would settle in Palestine and would become a member of the Israeli Olympic Committee, must have been depressed by what he heard. It is also impossible to imagine how Jewish athletes felt. On the one hand, their organization obviously condemned anti-Semitism. On the other hand, they were German citizens and would have pride in representing their country, which is why they later became Israeli citizens and denied representation uh, of the Palestinians in the Olympic Games. What the fuck, man? These people. I mean, the worst part about this is the guy, right? It's hard. I'm sorry. It's a little hard to read because it's so goofy to write this kind of shit with a straight face when it's just, like all right there in front of you. Uh, but you're too much of either a pussy or a retard to just like make any sense of it. I don't know. It's a little tiresome. But the point is this 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 absolute lad, Avery Brundage. Uh, again, not an ideologue. He was just a man who had his principles. Uh, he also, I know that later he uh, expressed after because after, uh, Laney Riefenstahl was in the United States promoting Olympia, which came out by the way in 1938. Adam and I were talking a little bit before we start recording about how actually impressive that was that she was Adam is at first surprised that it took two years for the film to come out. But uh, if you know anything about the production of that, I mean, she had like six cameras and you have to imagine the amount of footage that she got. And back then, I mean, you're editing with, a, with basically like a razor. Blade. Well, that, that was actually so, just on the field itself. She had uh, aerial balloons and then I guess yep. probably uh, underwater stuff. She had an underwater, which by the way, was one of the, I think the first underwater shot ever put on film. I mean, she pioneered the tracking shot. Like she was, she was absolutely brilliant. I mean, and then like all, all the Hollywood Jews stole from her and gave her no credit. Uh, when she was promoting the film in America in 1939, uh, which I believe was also when she met Walt Disney, who took her to uh, give, give her a private showing of uh, Fantasia. Uh, she had to leave America. She was asked. She was like told that she had to get get out of America. Um, and uh, Brundage expressed sympathy with her. And uh, just paraphrase, I don't have the direct quote in front of me, but he did say something very much to the effect of, like, I'm sorry, like, you can't show the film. Uh, all the studios in uh, in America, uh, studios and theaters, are, are they're all run by Jews. So that's kind of to be expected. And by the way, he joined uh, America First, as well as the, uh, the, the Boond. Uh, he then did do a Lindbergh, though, when Pearl Harbor was uh, attacked by 
well, I, I ostensibly by Imperial Japan, but uh, was allowed to be attacked by the Roosevelt administration. Anyways, um, there was one more. I think it's this one's worth it. Well, I won't read the whole quote, um, but basically, so the, then the blacks were like, yeah, no, this is bullshit. Like, we want to go run fast. Like, you know, this will, this, why should we be denied this? And that's kind of the joke, too, is like America's, it wasn't about the Jews. And again, it wasn't about who America fielded. This was just like an, a tantrum over the fact that like Germany didn't want to field a chicken swinging team. And this um, eventually, like it just got through like bureaucratic rigmarole. And eventually, it, like I mentioned, there was that one association that was the last holdout and uh, the vote against the boycott came down to like 58 and quarter to 55 and three quarters. So, and there, I didn't dig too deep into who exactly represented this amateur uh, sport, who these people were, but it's kind of interesting that people who dedicate their lives to sports are uh, so concerned about this. And why is only the Americans? No one else seems to have this problem. Anyways, uh, a few more notes on Brundage. I'd just say he was he was an interesting man, and I hadn't heard of him. So, uh, encourage if anyone is interested, uh, just look him up. His actually his Wikipedia is really interesting. That's what I first stumbled across, and, and I was reading this book and found a few more fun little tidbits. But uh, the other big controversy was over. He was big, big dedicated to the purity of the sport in terms of the the amateur aspect. Which, as far as I know now, it's just been like thrown out the window altogether in favor of like we're doing like consumer capitalist sports now. Is that right, Adam? I don't know. I know that that, that was that movie that uh, uh, the hockey movie about the oh, amateur American team. Yeah, yeah. That came out. I mean, God, really that was hard. like almost 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I've never seen that in theaters actually, uh, but I think that was the last time. Uh, America did an amateur team for hockey. I could be wrong about that. And they're kind of, it's kind of, this is again the problem. Like when you try to do this, it's why it's hopelessly idealistic. It's like when you try to create a standard for across the world, I mean, you have these totally different systems. I mean, from the Soviet one to the American capitalist one, it's like, what is, I mean, that's why they're, because the Soviets, it's like you're, you're basically, you're, you're grown in an athletic vat, right? I mean, the, the whole Soviet athlete stuff is wild. And a lot of those guys, by the way, ended up as uh, mercenaries for hire in the, in the wild days of the 90s in Moscow. Uh, other than um, uh, my deep, deep knowledge of Rocky Four, I cannot uh, confirm or deny that, but I did know a, a fellow from it's a actually, it's, former it's Soviet accurate. bloc country that was on the Olympic team. And yeah, it's pretty much you're your handpicked from almost birth to live in that system. Yep. And that part is true for sure. Um, that's what yeah. you do. You don't. You don't do anything else. So, like, it's like no, you're not competing competing in a commercial sense, but you're like, it's it's just like you can't really weigh these two things. It's not possible. Just like it's not possible to decide who gets to be a nation and who isn't. I mean, you're basically it's always going to be referring to the the current power system wherever that may be. I mean, like in any given country you have, I mean, all over the world, there's, you know, small groups of nations within nations that aren't going to be allowed rep representation because of obvious reasons. I mean, 
it's kind of a doomed project. And the more of the world you include in it, like I, I think I had mentioned earlier, 1936 Olympics was 49 countries. So I think it was 51. Oh. Uh, you might be right, but I think it's 49, but it, it's neither here nor there. It's still smaller than today. Now, I think that's about all I have to say about the whole controversy surrounding him, the boycott and everything. I think the only thing I'd add, um, I, I just think it, it'd be very, you got to watch, you got to watch the film. The, the film does a really good job of, of the opening in particular. Uh, there's a few, we talked a we already, we, we discussed already on, on the record. Yeah. About the, uh, the team's entrances. Yeah, we did. I mean, you can see it on the, see it. You watch, watch Olympia. You'll see it for yourself. Well, I mean, I found it uh, intriguing which countries gave the... Um, I, I don't really know what they considered it at the time. I mean, historically, it's referred to as the Roman salute, but the obviously everybody in the American mind fuck that is you know the global media is going to call it the nazi salute that's not technically correct it's uh, well in america it would have been called the bellamy salute <laughs> oh really <laughs> yeah, i don't even know what that is but yeah today, today they, they call well, it the the german salute but it, um, it was an early attempt it was it is edward bellamy early attempted yeah that's another story but it's it, i would i would i think the the best we can do is we, we will call it the european salute and Americans don't know how to do it. That's what Mosley called it. But, I mean, it, it's sort of in contrast to the raised fist, which is the international communist symbol. And uh, that's my understanding of where it came about, uh, at least in the 20th century context. Historically, it may very well have been what the uh, Roman army did. Uh, I haven't researched it that thoroughly. But what was interesting to me was the countries that did did do that and obviously the host country of Germany where that was a big thing and you could see the panoramic uh, panning shots of the entire stadium doing it uh, and then uh, as the teams en- entered through the gate and went around the uh, the track they would uh, they would do their signature salute uh, whether it was the one that the Germans were doing in the audience or uh, the Americans took their hat off and put it on their heart. And, um, but France and Greece, I thought were notable in that they were both countries that ended up getting invaded by the, uh, Axis powers in Europe. Uh, they did the salute. So I thought that was notable. Well, so also keep in mind that you have when in these entrants, I mean, this would have been, which is why I really want to see someone, to a good Blu-ray restoration of the film because most of the versions, they're, uh, they could use a little bit of work because what happened, you had everyone in this massive crowd, every German saluting these teams as they, as they entered. You know, I mean, it was massive. And as for the French question, um, there was actually a lot of enthusiasm for the French because there was a lot of hope for peace at this time there's actually i have a quote uh here again from the source material uh first we'll say that uh, despite the modest receptions accorded to the british and americans overall the whole procession had been well received a swedish journalist wrote i believe that the walls would burst 
Had there been a roof over the stadium, it would certainly have been blown away since the entire bowl was a cauldron of stormy enthusiasm. And a Parisian correspondent declared, at the reception accorded the French team, one had the feeling that a great moment had arrived in the history of the world. Never was the war threat on the Rhine less than during these moments. Never were the French more popular in Germany than on this occasion. It was a demonstration, but one of comradeship and the will for peace. And Hitler's, uh, when he speaks, what he says is very briefly, he says, simply, I proclaim open the Olympic Games of Berlin, celebrating the 11th Olympiad of the modern era. And then uh, Strauss gave the Olympic, I mean, Strauss himself gave the Olympic hymn. I mean, how epic that would have been. Uh, I should say, on the we'll do one last thing on the Jesse Owens. There's this myth that uh, Hitler refused to shake hands with Jesse Owens. Uh, this is completely incorrect. First of all, he wasn't shaking hands with people. He did, in fact, salute Jesse Owens. But it's just a it's just a lie they tell because they're trying to build up this mythology of like Jesse Owens. American Negro, like, owning the Third Reich. I mean, you just read a little bit. But it just didn't happen. I think, I mean, even popular writers, like, will concede that. I mean, the two popular writers I consulted for this both had to grudgingly admit that was true. And then they quote a bunch of other people. The other funny aspect of that, actually really funny, is the the two Jews that America had on this track team, I think they had a few more, but the ones who were supposed to be running uh, the four-man hundred relay uh, were replaced <laughs> at the last minute, you know, probably for uh, anti-Semitic reasons, right? Well, they were replaced by more Negroes. Oh, for athletic reasons. Yes, because they were faster. Right. Another hilarious own. I don't know who's getting on there. I guess the Jews, but it's just like, I, it's, uh, it's America you're going with. It's like, I mean, the, typically the way this kind of sports stuff works is like, there's a lot of uh, whoever, it, it really came down to, because the, the reason it was controversial is because they already had it in the bag. So like, why replace them? You already have it in the bag. It must be, it must be anti-Semitism. And it's like, no, that's not it. It's, uh, first of all, you want to win by as much as possible, right? That's the point. You're not just trying to beat the other guy. You're trying to get the best time. Uh, but in addition to that, there's a lot of uh, a lot of ego and uh, narcissism wrapped up usually in the handlers of these kinds of athletes. I mean, they're the ones who make those decisions, and they're the ones whose vanity is on the line. So they're like they wanted the they wanted to win by as much as possible, and they wanted their their boys there their boys to do it you know do you have anything you'd like to add adam no um what i mean i i did watch it's so it's two parts this olympia and i was able to i guess scan through the second part but it's it's about four hours i think the whole thing and i watched the beginning and then i watched a lot of the uh, the first part and you get the you get the sort of idea once they've done, you know, five or six of the competitions. The format is pretty similar. Um, 
I was really just more curious about the historical aspects of it. Like how did they perform the ceremony? What were the, uh, the kind of technologies used? And I thought it was kind of notable how they had kind of a, like a, a cap gun, you know, for starting things. And then, um, the guy would speak in German, but they also had uh, different, um, national announcers, which was kind of intriguing. And then the microphones they used were these very like old tube style things that were kind of neat. Um, obviously you have shots of the, uh, Nazi, Nazi party leaders, uh, interspersed throughout. And also of the audience, uh, for the different nations that are, uh, winning or losing, they show the reactions of the audience. That was kind of kind of an interesting film effect. Um, I'm trying to remember anything else. Like the yeah, the Americans did pretty well. Like I, I have to say, I, I don't know what the numbers were. I mean, but they came in second. Yeah, I, I remember they did well. Um, and I didn't watch all of it. So, but yeah, from the little eye that I I did see, um, they did well. Norway did well too. I mean, Norway cleaned up at the winter. Well, you know, it was funny to me was for the spear throwing. They were all, (laughs) they were all like ice age peoples. And I just had like these, this immediate vision of just like hunter gatherer cavemen throwing spears back in the, uh, the the European tundra, like woolly mammoths or something, (laughs) because it was Germany, Finland, you know, all, all the other sort of Northern European countries. They had that one down. Um, Turns out the spear chuckers aren't actually the best spear chuckers. What do you know? <laughs> well, nowadays the people who still throw spears, it's a different. But um, yeah, and I didn't see the closing ceremony. I, I, I'm just wondering if it was uh, as kind of like the um, the tail end of the, the beginning of the opening. A little bit more bittersweet because of you know. I mean, at least watching it with the hindsight of history and understanding that this this really was kind of the high watermark of a potential for a European peace. But I mean, the winds of war were already they're already there. I mean, they're just there are some people that just they see that kind of thing and uh, they want to descend the European continent into hellfire. I mean, it will not be be less than a decade later that that whole city is under fucking hellfire. So. Well, that's why I was surprised the the stadium itself wasn't completely ruined. I mean, Berlin was people complete, would be killing each other. Was rebuilt you know? after the uh, after the bombardment, and it's it's rare that there's much of uh, historical Berlin left. Like the Brandenburg gate is still there, but they still have the machine gun holes in it. Um, I think the uh, Reichstag was partially bombed. I'm trying to remember what else, but uh, yeah, Berlin's a, Berlin's a big city. So I didn't see all of it. I should add, I, I, as a correction from earlier, uh, the bell was actually, I got most of that right, but the bell was restored. I think in the fifties, I, presume that it's still the bell that's up there i don't know it just seems so unlike them to keep something like that in use today but in i don't know maybe it wasn't clear when i was just i was just reading through my notes it wasn't clear if that's i know they restored it i don't know if it's the one that's still there uh i will close with what i thought was one of the funniest parts of the book because 
it's especially when you read it alongside watching Olympia. It's like even this. I mean, obviously some shit lib. I don't know. I, the, the shitty writer, um, Liptard, just call them Liptards. I uh, just can't help himself, but you know, acknowledge because I think also the photos like from his personal collection. That's at least what the attribution said in the captions. But uh, he can't help but acknowledge the glory of this moment and. This, I thought, was the uh, the funniest part. The German Chancellor, together with members of the IOC and the organizing committee, were driven on to the bell tower. There, the Olympic officials formed up ready to greet Hitler on the huge Mayfield, where an honor guard representing all three military services was drawn up, together with every athlete taking part in the games. When Hitler's car arrived at 3.50 p.m., the light rain, which had glistened on the roads and pavements and dampened the clothes, if not the spirits of the spectators, athletes and officials alike, suddenly stopped, as if by command. Chinks of blue sky began to appear.